We are continuing a focus during this season of Lent as we march towards the cross, as we march towards Good Friday and Easter. In this portion of John, in which Jesus suffers. We saw a few weeks ago that Jesus suffered betrayal. Jesus experienced betrayal. Jesus last week experienced denial. And we saw Jesus' compassion in response to Peter's denial and in response to our denials of him. This week we are going to look at something that Jesus suffered that is possibly one of the most corrosive, destructive dynamics that we can bring into a relationship, I would say, that we find in society at large. So this morning what we're going to be talking about is something that I know, you know, this morning, last night we lost an hour of sleep, so I know we're a little bit more tired and whatnot, but what I'd say is for the next 35 or so minutes to have your eyes open, have your ears, your ears open, because what we're going to talk about today is something that could bring a ton of healing to your marriages, a ton of healing to your friendships, a ton of healing to your relationships in general, and that thing that we're going to be talking about today is contempt. What is contempt? I know when I say that, we immediately go, ooh, contempt, sounds serious. But what is it? It's kind of this nebulous thing. Well, here's the dictionary definition of contempt. It's the feeling that a person or a thing is beneath consideration, worthless or deserving scorn, or disregard for something that should be taken into account. We have lots of ways of describing contempt. One way of describing contempt would be to look down your nose at someone. We have these phrases that we use to kind of blank shame someone. Uh, contempt is this kind of taking a position of moral superiority of, in other words, kind of being the judge and putting the other person or group of people in the box or in the dock. That's the person who is on trial. It's assuming the, pl the moral place of superiority over someone else and looking down on them. Contempt claims over one another, well, they're just the way they are. Usually looks at them as almost subhuman. Kind of looks at them as someone as they're, they're the sum of what they'll ever be, they'll never change. I like to sum it up with the phrase, just look at you. And it says of the person, it's not just maybe I disagree with you or I think you're wrong or I think you're you know, deficient in this one area and but here are all the good things, but it just looks at someone and says, not only do I think you're wrong, but I think you're just bad, deficient. This is a big topic today because it's very palpable in the society that we live in. In fact, today I'm going to, if no one has, has grabbed this title for a book, I want to grab it so I can write it. We no longer live in the contemporary society, I'd say contemporary society should be retitled as the contemptuous, contemptuous society. If I'm going to steal the title, I should make sure I can pronounce it right. And we could spend a lot of time talking about the kind of different cultural cross currents that are, I think, causing these kind of choppy waters that we find ourselves in, where media and everything around us seems to just seethe with contempt and the discourse and the attitudes, and the responses, and the comment sections. But what I think today, what we're going to zero in on, and we're going to actually probably go into a little bit more of those dynamics next week, but what I think you'll find refreshing is what I found this week, which is that Jesus suffered contempt. 
That in this scene, when Jesus is brought before the high priest, Jesus, we have to see him not as kind of sitting in an armchair, sipping tea, talking to the high priest, but Jesus is brought bound. Jesus probably has his hands tied behind his back on his knees before the high priest as he stands over him. He talks down to him. He looks down on him. Jesus suffered contempt. But I think you'll also find, you'll find that refreshing as we look at that. And what that communicates, what aspect of the gospel that communicates to us, but also I think what you'll find is convicting, which is the subtle ways that we pour out contempt. See, Jesus suffered it, but we do it. And so what we're going to look at first are the dynamics of contempt. What is this thing called contempt? How does it happen? How does it come about? Then we're going to look at what are the signs in our life of contempt. And then lastly, we're going to look at what is the remedy for contempt? What do we do about it? How do we respond to it? How do we find freedom from it and healing in it? So first, let's pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that on the way to the cross, Lord, we see in such a unique, distinct, acute way that you address so many of the fundamental pains, destructive tendencies, Realities in our lives and our relationships that just reap rotten fruit in our lives. So, Lord, today, would you set us free from contemptuous hearts? Lord, would you set us free from an attitude of moral superiority? Lord, would you give us a heart of humility, a heart that looks to Christ for our sense of righteousness? Lord, would you make us a people who serve, who are humble, who walk in the righteousness that we have in Christ alone? to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the dynamics of contempt. Again, in this passage, Jesus' trial is beginning. He's been betrayed, and now he's being brought before the high priest. And, and so, and in this scene, they're kind of looking down on him in contempt. was read in the scripture reading, and we saw that. But what is surfacing? What is it that surfaced this contempt towards Jesus? See, as we come into this scene and we see them kind of standing over him, and we're going to see in future weeks mockery and, and all these things poured out on Jesus, what is it that's underneath it that's kind of surfacing this response to Jesus? We've actually just seen a clue back in verse 12. Chapter 18, verse 12, start reading there. So the band of soldiers, this is right after uh, Judas betrays him, and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Who was Caiaphas? Was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, notice that this is framed by that prophecy. Caiaphas had prophesied that Jesus would die for the people of the nation. And so what, what, what was it? That gives us a clue. John's saying, remember the prophecy, remember that scene. And so it's, it's, it's helpful when you read that to go, wait, why is John reminding us of that? Let's go back and let's look at where that prophecy was first given, which is back in John 11. And it says this, this is John eleven forty five through 53. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he had did, what he did, what he had did, <laughs> what he did. Now, this is right after. This is the verse after the resurrection of Lazarus. Jesus says, climactic miracle. This is the work I will do. You will walk out of the grave. You will be free. You'll have newness of life. Right after that next verse, this begins. What he did, believed that many believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. 
Look what we found the Savior, the guy who's going to resurrect the dead, who's going to forgive us of our sins. And they go to them thinking they're the leaders of essentially the first century, you could say church, but of the the temple. And they're going to go to them, and they're the governing authorities really locally of the Jewish nation. They have all of this clout. And of course, they're going to say, wow, let's go find out more. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, do you see what John's doing here? John's sending us back to the prophecy so that we would see what the underlying motivation is as they bring Jesus to the trial. See, we read this line, you know, Jesus, the prophecy was that Jesus should die for the nation. And we, of course, read that and we go, wow, that's actually a great theology of the cross. Jesus is the Savior who dies for the people. And so there's that, and that is true. It's kind of ironic that it fulfills that and points to that. But what John's doing here is he's drawing attention. He's emphasizing here what is the motivation underneath what's going on and what's motivating them. What's underneath it is a deep insecurity. What's motivating the religious leaders is the deep insecurity because Jesus, because of what he's doing, because of who he is, because of how the people are responding to him, will cause them to lose their position with Rome. Now, what's helpful, before unpacking that further, is to understand what's going on here with these different kind of characters that are showing up here uh, and what's going on specifically politically at that point. This is going to play out a lot over the next few weeks. So what's going on? So one, Annas is what you could call this one here who Jesus brought before. He's, think of him as a, he's the old guard. Annas is actually the retired high priest. He's, he's the high priest emeritus. He's the one who had been the great high priest when the Jews had more power. Now, he was deposed by Rome. And in his place, they made his son-in-law, imagine the family dynamics there, but they made his son-in-law high priest in his place. Caiaphas, who was put in his place, is seen as a weakling. He's seen as a puff- puppet for Rome. See, we have a chart here that captures the different dynamics that were at play. The Roman Empire was led by the Roman emperor, a.k.a. the Caesar. And so we see this play out a little bit later where we're going to have this, this kind of regional, world-dominating power that had come in in the previous few generations that had begun to have more and more power over the Judean nation. Well, the Judean region, which was led by the Roman governor, this is where Pilate comes in. Okay, so Pilate's the local entity or the local politician, you could say, or authority for Rome. And the governor had the rules to administer justice, to sentence people to death. We're going to see that come up in a little bit. Uh, Taxation, military affairs, public order. All things that the Sanhedrin or the high priest would have had power over just recently. So then we get to the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is essentially the local uh, church structure. They're the local church authorities. And they were governed by the Council of the Jews, which was led by the high priest, which at this point is Caiaphas. Now, the Sanhedrin's power, they could not sentence to death. They could try most legal cases, but not all of them, including this one. And they owned and oversaw the police force. This is why they're the ones who are able to go and arrest Jesus. 
but they aren't able to see through then the trial and execution of Jesus. So all these dynamics are going on, and this is why, actually, John does something really interesting in his gospel. And if you've read the other gospel accounts, you have both this Annas thing where he goes to Annas, but then there's this interaction with Caiaphas, the high priest. But here's what's interesting in John's gospel. He deliberately skips right over that step in his narrative. If you look down, it says, here he comes to Annas, and then you get down to verse 24. Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, then it goes back, if, if you saw last week, it, kind of the scenes jump back and forth. We have Jesus, he's taken off and bound, and then it goes to Peter's denial, the setup to that scene. Then it goes over to Jesus with the high priest, to, to Annas and their interaction. Then it jumps back in 25 through 27 to Peter denying him and the rooster crowing. Then it goes back to when the trial continues. So it says they sent him to Caiaphas, 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Wait, where was the interaction with Caiaphas? John skips it on purpose. And John skips it on purpose because he's drawing out the dynamics of what's going on here, which is that one, historically, Jesus was becoming a political pawn for Caiaphas. He was becoming one who they could essentially put up as a scapegoat, which we're going to look at that dynamic more next week. But they put him up as a scapegoat, as, a, as kind of an offering to show we are superior here. See, Caiaphas represents, he, he embodies what was the, the sense of superiority that the religious leaders had. And here's why this is important. Because contempt always begins with a sense of superiority. Contempt begins with a sense of superiority. So I'm going to unpack a few dynamics of contempt. Contempt begins with a sense of superiority. For them, it was their, their sense of superiority, whether it was morally, religiously. There was also an ethnic aspect for them. It was some kind of superiority. They wanted the political power. And Jesus threatened it. They saw Jesus as not being worthy of that. Now, we can do this in all sorts of ways. What about us, right? We can look at the trial here and go, I would never do that. Yet at the same time, there are all kinds of things. We can find a sense of superiority in anything. We can find a sense of superiority in our intellect, in our careers, in our achievements. We can find it in our attractiveness. Uh, we can find it in, in almost anything. You can find it in your stamp collection, for, for goodness sake, right? Sorry if I offended the one of you out there. But we can find a sense of superiority in, in anything. And then the problem is that when we find that sense of superiority in that, that's the thing that we actually believe defines us and actually sets us apart. In other words, it's a pseudo form of salvation. It's something that gives us that sense of enoughness, of righteousness, of, of being essentially, I am here. And guess what? If I'm here, I'm reminded of a line in uh, Flannery O'Connor's novel, Wise Blood. There's this girl who's like a teenager and they're interacting with her. And she says, if I never do anything wrong, I'll never need Jesus. And isn't it true that if we can always have ourselves in the place of the judge, if we can always be superior, if we can always be the one on top, then actually if it's that thing that we look to that ultimately gives us value, it also gives us a sense that we're set apart and that actually we don't need salvation because we're actually superior enough. That being on top and superior in that area is what sets us apart or sanctifies us. Now, the problem is, usually, it's because it's something that we are a little bit good at, unless we're completely off our whacker. But 
usually it means we're good at something. We're, we're good in our career. We're able to advance. We're smart. We, we have giftings that we've been given. The problem is that we're not perfect in them. The problem is that it's not everything. And so what happens when that is threatened is that our contempt comes out. So the second dynamic is that contempt is driven by insecurity. Insecurity means that we could lose something, that it could be lost, that it's threatened. And so for them, Jesus was this thing that came, this person, this dynamic that was introduced that threatened their security, their sense of superiority, that they were the ones who should really be reigning. They're the ones who are morally pure. They're the ones who please God the most. And Jesus threatened that. In our lives, contempt can come up usually whenever the areas that we find our superiority in threaten the most. This can happen in all kinds of ways. And, and once you start talking about the dynamics, it becomes very clear. If, let's say, you find your, this is why I shouldn't make up examples in the moment, but let's say you find your, your, your sense of superiority through your attractiveness. Then somebody else walks into the room that you perceive as perhaps as attractive or more attractive than you. And then what do you begin to do? You don't go, wow, congratulations. <laughs> Welcome to the tens. Uh, <laughs> what you do is you usually begin to find ways to disqualify them. I may be attractive, but I'm, I don't try to look at what, how they wear their clothes. They're trying to get attention. You may attack their character, at least some kind as well, in how I use my attractiveness. Take, for example, if it's your career, this is how it begins to bleed over into dynamics that are very deadly in a home. Imagine that I, I find my identity in my career and then when I, I and, and my achievements and my ability to progress and kind of always take the next rung on the ladder and then I don't get that promotion. And then what happens is I begin to come home. This is why these dynamics begin to happen in the home where I, I come home and my kids' behavior, then I begin to say, if only you could get your act together, then I would be able to get that promotion. Because I wouldn't be so tired around here all the time. You begin to look down your nose and say, look at you. Can't get your act together. You may turn to your spouse. If you could run this home better, if you, if you weren't so lazy, if it, you see where these things come out? then I would be able to perform better. On and on and on, you could go into social media, how these things come up. If we see ourselves as having an intellect that is just far superior than anyone else's, and someone else comes on the scene that seems like a competitor, even though they may agree with you, you will see them as the greatest opponent. One of the things, uh, Rene Girard, who's a, Philosopher, uh, he was a Catholic philosopher, but he, he actually talks about identity formation is unfortunately because of the fall usually done by us comparing ourselves to other people and it usually is fueled by contempt because what happens is, for instance, let's say I want to be the greatest pastor in the world, whatever that means, but I want to be the greatest pastor in the world. And so I, look, I will look at uh, well-known pastors, let's say in their 60s or 70s, and if the, I say, wow, they can just preach better, they can shepherd better, they can just talk better, lead better. I won't find that threatening. I'll actually say, well, I'm gonna, I want to be there in 30 years. I'm going to learn from them. But if a peer gets more accolades, if a peer is able to preach better, 
if a peer is somebody who's able to shepherd better, if a peer is able to do those things better, I will actually begin in my heart to begin to critique them and I will begin to compare myself and I will rip them down and say, yeah, but they don't, they may do this better, they may do that better, but they didn't see this insight. They, you asked me a question, did you see that post? Wasn't that a great post? And I go, yeah, but this is how I would have actually said it better. We do this in all kinds of little areas where we pour out contempt because here's the thing, uh, contempt surfaces when whatever we find our sense of superiority, superiority in is threatened. Now, what happens from that then is that then we begin to see problems, not people. Often what this does is we, we tend to actually begin to group people into a problem set. Because here's the thing, you can, you have, to, you have to relate to people in kindness, but if you can reduce them to a problem and bunch them together and make them just kind of a group, then you can just merely, you can deal with problems harshly. And so what we see is on a macro scale, right? We see the, the Nazis, when it's threatened by a group, you can just group everyone together into a racial group or an ethnic group. That's how genocides happen. You can begin to group uh, people together into classes. Lower class, upper class, middle class. You can begin to group people into right versus left. It's much easier if you can group them into groups. And what we begin to do is problematize people. And so you see this all the time in identity politics. You see this all the time on if you're on Twitter, right? You don't engage if somebody says something or on Facebook or what? what twi- do people even engage on TikTok? I don't even know how it works. But it's like you dance back at someone to argue. But I, I'm not on TikTok. But wi- what you see is someone doesn't just say, wow, that's a great Argument, this is where I would do it differently. What you do and you say is, yeah, but you, yeah, you would say that because you're a man or you would say that because you're a woman. You would say that because you're on the left. You would say that because you're on the right. You would say that because of this. And here's the other thing that's really dangerous for us as Christians is we tend to do this often with other churches. Oh, they're just at that church down the street. They're in that denomination. I can just disregard them. Contempt we usually group into groups because it's easier to reduce them, dehumanize them, make them a problem, make them part of a set, make them 100% that thing, and it's much easier to deal harshly with them morally if they're really less than human and they're just a problem. Contempt is so nasty, and Jesus here has just become for them nothing but a problem. Next, then, contempt protects us from our deepest insecurities Because what happens, the way we do this is we construct a narrative. Because here's the thing, none of us are going to be like, oh man, I have a superiority complex. Uh, What we're going to do is we're actually going to create a narrative and craft a narrative around the whole thing that allows us to believe that actually everything we're doing is legitimate. Uh, So again, what, what happens, look at 19 through 21. So the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Are those who have heard me, who have heard me what I said, ask those, sorry, (laughs) ask those who have heard me say what, what I said to them. They know what I said. So again, what's happening here is they begin questioning Jesus. 
They know all the facts. They know about raising Lazarus. They know all the things about Jesus. And at this point, all they're doing is reducing him to a problem. We've seen in John's gospel where they're just going, hey, Jesus, you know what's true about you? Aren't you from Nazareth? Aren't you one of those people? What good comes from there? Jesus, isn't your mom, didn't she have you out of wedlock? Jesus, didn't you come from, are you really, truly, ethnically a Jew? Over and over again, we're seeing these things come up in John because there's this contempt. They need to build the narrative to disqualify him. And when it comes here to sit down with him, they're not having tea, talking about what Jesus thinks, how they should run the nation. Hey, you're healing people. You're doing all these amazing things. The people are following you. They're sitting down and they're putting the light in his face and they're interrogating him. They're searching for gotcha statements. So Jesus isn't accepting the premise. Jesus isn't answering. Jesus says, you already know, but you refuse to look at the very data that you see, and you're spinning a whole narrative, so I'm not going to give you more data points just to spin this narrative. What you are going to do, I'm going to make it plain to the world what you're doing. And so Jesus humbly refuses to respond. See, often what we'll do is we'll spin a narrative about others, We'll problematize, we'll look at, well, well, it's this or that thing, then we start talking about this. We, we start adding or uh, reading things with certain motivations, ascribing motivations that might not be there, ascribing moral deficiencies, questioning motives and what people are doing, giving that lens of suspicion to everything around that person. We have to craft, because again, if then we go, well, they're, they're a threat, it's much easier to treat them harshly like a problem and to be nasty, honestly. When everyone else, remember again that passage when they said we need to put him to death, when that first happened, that happened right after Jesus had raised Lazarus and when everyone else was saying praise God, all they could see was we've got to get this narrative together and we've got to paint this man as trouble because he's a threat. I, I just want to say this really quickly before moving on again. Nick did a good job last week of drawing this out, that these two scenes of Peter denying Jesus and what's happening with Jesus in the, with the high priest, they are kind of interspersed. They're interconnected, and we get one little part, then we jump to the air scene, then back to Peter's now, then back to this. And the reason why, what's amazing is that while this is happening with Jesus, Peter is denying Jesus in the courtyard. And I can't help when I read this, when I think about the contempt in my heart, how often I am willing to deny Jesus and talk about what makes what I have contempt over and confess that much more quickly than I'm willing to confess Christ. And I think one of the most powerful witnesses we as the church can have today is that we would not join in the chorus of contempt, but that we would be ones who would just humbly confess Christ and his grace and redemption and add that thread into all the language and discourse that's out there. But before we can get there, we have to look at what are the signs of contempt, moral superiority. So we have to, we have to address these things. Uh, if, if, if contempt largely is seeing others as beneath us, it means, again, that the signs are a posture of moral superiority, and that's exactly what we see here. The first way, the first sign of contempt, the first posturing is that contempt strikes out disproportionately to the offense or the offender. Look at verse 22. When he had said these things, so Jesus answers very humbly, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you address the high priest? Jesus refuses 
to answer what they say. And because they stand over him, because they're looking down at him, because they talk down to him, because they see themselves as superior to Jesus, what they have no problem, even though this is the son of God, just sucker punching him. Because they see him as only a problem, they see him as beneath them. Why, why is this important? You will be able to discern where you are struggling with contempt if you find, if you, if you see where you lash out, where you in physically intimidate, where you find yourself, just the fire gets going and you almost can't control yourself. It means contempt's probably there. Because you're beginning to look at that person as less than you. As I'm a human up here, you're a human down there. If it's a group of people, if it's an individual, you will find yourself just lashing out, degrading, doing those things. Lashing out disproportionate to what happened. Man, I feel that. It happens so easily. The, the second one, so where are you easily offended? Where are you lashing out? Where are you making up stories and narratives about others? But then contempt also will ignore and silence the true narrative. Look at 23 and 24. Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Jesus humbly and simply points out the simple logic. Will you look at the signs? Will you look at what I've done? Will you look at what I've actually said? Will you actually look at my actual resume and who I am? And they silence it. And they'll only look at the facts that they, they actually ignore the feelings. Remember, what contempt does not allow itself to be questioned. It will not allow, a contemptuous heart will not allow itself to be examined. It will not look at itself in the mirror. Uh, in fact, if you remember the definition, notice what it said. It just, uh, the feeling that a person or thing is beneath consideration. It's a feeling because it's not a fact. And so facts are a, a great threat to contempt because facts will actually show you that the person is 100% bad, that perhaps you were in the wrong, that perhaps they aren't what you're making them out to be. So they silence it. This is why they just send him away. They don't even respond to him. One of the things that I, here's a question for us here that's a little bit over to the side. I, I think that oftentimes when God's word speaks into something in our lives, we will refuse to look at the facts and we will actually begin to hold God in contempt in our own hearts. It happens very easily when God speaks and it's something like this where God has borne witness and it's one of those where we just seethe and we just, we seethe with anger and we might seethe with anger towards other Christians who reinforce that truth. And you might even be here today and say, I am, I'm not really Christian. This is the first time I've come to church in a long time. I'm kind of looking into this thing. And what I would say is, have you allowed Jesus, actually when you look at God and consider his claims, when you look at the claims of Jesus, are you willing to actually look at what Jesus said? Are you willing to actually look at what Jesus did? It's here. Or are you crafting a narrative in your mind where you're able to just ignore the facts and you're able to hold Jesus in contempt and the claims of Christianity in contempt? Yes, the Bible says a lot of hard things. Believe me, I wrestle with it too. But at the same time, is this the God of the universe who makes life known? See, sometimes we may just say, I just don't believe or I intellectually can't buy it when actually what's happening is we have contempt in our heart towards God. And what it may mean for you to become a Christian, what it may mean for you to take a step of faith may be to acknowledge, God, I've been holding you in contempt. I've been refusing to look at the truth of who you are versus allowing you actually reveal yourself. 
And the whole time I've been spinning a narrative about you, about the church, all these things. Because often contempt reveals more about us and the one with the contempt than it does about the person we lash out at. Next, contempt cultivates blind religious hypocrisy. Boy, this just gets better, doesn't it? Uh, Look at verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. And then read this. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. (laughs) This, if, if you know you have that phrase, pregnant with irony, this is like full term pregnant with irony. Uh... The baby's coming out pregnant. Uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, the, <laughs> uh, the Weird. Um, this is the lamb, Passover lamb of God, who's going to be sacrificed for the sins of the world, and they are holding him in contempt. And here is their Savior, the one that their whole religion pointed to in all their books and all of their prophets and everything and the law. And here they are beating him, they're mocking him, they're denying him, they're holding him in contempt. And then they say, well, we're just not going to enter the governor's headquarters because we want to be clean so that we can go to church. It is very easy to be the person who holds people in contempt, to hold our spouses, to hold our kids, to hold groups of people, to hold and harbor contempt in our heart, and then to think we're doing it all in the name of God. If we are saving, here's the danger of this, how this happens. Christianity will either actually make you an increasingly humble servant or Christianity will make you an increasingly bitter, self-righteous individual. Here's how it works. Uh, we, if we find things other than God that give us our sense of superiority, but then we dress it up in the garb of Christianity, then we will feel so superior with our moral pronouncements, with our churchiness, with our whatever the thing is, with our ability to speak and articulate theology accurately, whatever those things are. I have the put-together family. Look how I've structured it. Whatever that thing is, I have the put-together life. And then what happens is that becomes one day when we stand before the judgment seat of God, this is my resume. Thank you. I spent my whole life standing in authority and superiority in the judge's seat over everyone else holding up that resume. Do you think that's not what our heart's going to do when we stand before God? We cultivate with blind religious hypocrisy using, and then that contempt makes us feel so good because the whole time we're able to hold that group or that church or that Christian over there or that person who isn't a Christian, we're able to hold them in contempt and the whole time we feel like it's what makes us righteous. dangerous. And so Jesus is exposing this here in our hearts, this dynamic. You know, it's one of the most dangerous things that happens in our lives. We go down that track. But next thing, contempt skips the trial and jumps to the verdict. Uh, Verse 29 and 30. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusations do you bring against this man? So he goes to the crowd. So now he's with Pilate, the governor. Who can kill him? He goes out to the crowd. What accusations do you bring against him? Listen to this. They answered him. If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate goes, hey, where's, we're on trial. Where's the data? What's the accusation? And they go, we don't care. We have a verdict for you, 
Pilate, he goes, I didn't ask for a verdict. And they go, we don't care. We have a verdict already. They skip the trial and jump straight to the verdict. The verdict is in before the trial even begins. And contempt will always do that. What happens is when we allow those false narratives to grow and the narratives are reinforced, especially as we gossip to other people, then what happens is it's so easy to eventually put that person essentially to death. But look at what happens in the next verse. This was to fulfill, or sorry, in verse 31, take him and judge him and judge, uh, judge him according to your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We know it's not lawful to put someone to death, to treat him like a problem, but we'll socially banish them. We'll ruin their reputation. We'll tear them down. Even if it just remains in our own heart, we'll tear them down verbally. We'll tear them down with intimidation. We'll, in so many ways, we'll whisper. You ever heard of the whisper campaign? We'll whisper to others about them. We know we shouldn't put them to death physically, but we'll do it every other way, won't we? One of the, there's a researcher named John Gottman. He's actually a, a Jewish psychologist, I believe. Him and his wife, they... They do this research, and they say the most deadly, they have these four horsemen of the apocalypse. They can, they can predict a divorce up to 92% accuracy when they meet with a couple. Number one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse that ruins a marriage, contempt. What ruins relationships with our children? Contempt. What ruins relationships with those in the church with us? Contempt. What frays our society? Contempt. Because what happens is, how can a marriage last if we always want to treat one another as you're down here and I'm up here? What will happen to our children if we treat them, you're down here, I'm up here? What happens with our workplace relationships, our relationship with other churches? When we jump straight to the verdict and we claim you could never change, what could be more dehumanizing than to remove human agency at the end of the day? What group or person do you struggle with being beneath you? What group or individual are you tempted to lash out at or it just comes out? You make always statements, extreme statements. They're always this way. Who do you see as just beyond redemption? So what do we do? Uh, Jesus, Hebrews 12.3 says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself this kind of hostility, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Consider him. Uh, and here's the thing. What Christ did was Christ came to those who were beneath him. Christ, God, who could have stayed in heaven and looked down on us and looked down his nose at us. The God of the heavens who is holy and completely other, who is set apart, who's the Alpha and Omega, who has no end, he could have just looked down his nose at us and said, look at you. And that's the end. But instead, he who was above us came to be even beneath us. Third point, the remedy for contempt, look and serve. Look at verse 32. It says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. 
So all this contempt, this whole scene, he did these things, he endured these things so he could show what kind of death he was going to die. He's highlighting something for us. He's saying, here's the way of redemption. Don't miss this aspect of what I've done for you so that your soul will be set free from this and you won't go down that road of bitterness and self-righteousness. So when did he show? What I'm going to do is I'm going to trace back from this point. John's right here landing us in this kind of thing that's been growing in seed form throughout his gospel just blossoms here. Because this is when, when did he show what kind of death he was going to die? Verse, or chapter 12. Now is the judgment, this is Jesus, of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die wait a minute, so what was that kind of death? He said, when I am lifted up from the earth, that's the kind of death. Now, when was he lifted up? What does he mean by that? He said the exact same thing earlier. Go back to chapter three. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whatever, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, I'm doing this so that I can show you what kind of death I was going to die. What kind of death were you going to die? It's a lifted up kind of death. Well, what is that lifted up kind of death? It's just like when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. What does that mean, Jesus? Jesus is saying the kind of death I'm going to die is something that God has given you a picture of earlier in the time of Moses. It's in Numbers 21. When God's people are responding to him with contempt for him. It says, from Mount Hor, they set out by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke out against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food nor water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. So that the many people of Israel died, and the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. God gives the people a picture of their hearts, of their nature. And he says, when you live in contempt like this, I'm going to send in a serpent and it's going to bite you. A serpent is contemptuous. A serpent is like Satan. Satan's name is accuser. You live your life accusing and contempt and superiority. And so I'm sending these snakes to bite and devour to show what your nature is like if it's left unchecked. But then God is the one who when we live our lives in contempt saying, look at you, look at you. In that moment when God could have just said, look at you, he said, look up. And he gave them a sign with a serpent. And he said, I will give you one who will become like that serpent. I'll give you one who you will look up to when all your life you're looking down and everyone you'll learn to look up. The one who came down was then lifted up. See, what happened on that cross was that Jesus became like the serpent. He took on our nature. He took on the accusing nature, the contemptuous nature. Jesus became contemptible because he had to deal our, with our sin, which is so contemptible before God. Only God's wrath poured out isn't just look at you, but he says, look up. 
Look up, stop looking down on everyone around you and holding them in contempt, but look up and look at my grace, look at my healing, look at what I've given you, my righteousness and his perfect righteousness and wrath is poured out. His righteous contempt is poured out on that sin to make payment for it once and for all. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, look as I suffer contempt so that when you are tempted to find your righteousness and putting others in contempt and looking down at them, you would not look down, but you would look up. And you would see me. And with that, then Jesus also, early in the gospel, has given us a clue. So how do I also get myself to look up? In relationship to others. That's how we look up to God. But how do I look up in those relationships? How do I remedy or the antidote it's to serve one another. Jesus, when he originally told them of that kind of death in chapter 12, he then says this. He says, the, light, the verse right after it, the light is among you a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And he goes on to talk about this. Walk in the light. And you go, well, what's the light? Well, the next scene is when Jesus, after all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. When he's exalted, when he's on the throne of heaven and earth, the first act of what Jesus does in John 13 is he puts on the garb of a servant. And with all that power, all that authority, all that superiority over us, he gets down on his knees and he washes the disciples' feet. And he says, I do this to show the kind of death I must die. And you go and do likewise as well. Here's the thing. It is hard to look down on other people when you're washing their feet. It is very hard to have a posture of moral superiority when you are washing feet. And that means with your actions, if there are people in your life, look to serve others. Look to serve your children. Look to serve your spouse. There, there are a thousand different ways what that could look like. Look to serve others in the church. Those who you're struggling with contempt for, look to serve them. Serve them with your words and encouragement. I'll be honest, there was a pastor who, around my age, who was getting all this kind of like acclaim. And, and I was like, had this little, I was like, that was really good. And I was like, oh, I should have written that. And then I was like, okay, here comes the contempt. And so what I did was I actually, I texted him and I was like, you did a great job. Thank you. Because I could have been like, here's how I would have done it better. Because I could have done it better. Blah, 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 blah. You know, instead, and that's what I'm thinking, what I did instead was I, I texted him. I said, you said that really well. Thank you for saying that when no one else would say it. Done. And what I did in my heart was, yeah, because that's true. God's gifted him. God's gifted me. God's gifted the body of Christ. Thankfully, God has gifted him to say what needs to be said. I don't need to hold him in contempt. I don't find my righteousness there. I don't find my identity there. It's in Christ. How can you serve others with your hands, with your mouth, and encourage? You can't serve someone, or you can't look down on someone when you're washing their feet. Uh, so Christ descended so we might ascend by grace, not contempt. So don't look down on others for life. Look up to the cross. And Jesus says, raise your eyes, and your soul will be raised to life in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for this very clear teaching. Lord, how we often want to ascend to a place of superiority through whatever we feel makes us 
righteous, enough, better than. Lord, would you reveal to us where we do these things, where those signs of contempt are coming out. Lord, would you give us wisdom to discern? Would you give us an openness, soft hearts to ask others around us, where am I? Are you seeing this contempt breed? And Lord, please keep us from becoming bitter, contemptuous, blaming, undercutting, gossiping, slandering people. Would you heal us as a church of these things? God, would you do damage control in these things? Would you set us free from these things so that we would be a people who commend you, not just hold others in contempt and make that our religious game. But Lord, will we be a humble people, a servant people, a people who are right, righteous in you and set free? Lord, we, we don't have the insight to see us. We blind ourselves all the time. We spin these narratives. Lord, would you free us from those? Would you break them down? Would you even do whatever it takes for that to happen, Lord, even though that's a scary prayer to pray? Would you make us a people who we commend and proclaim you because we're experiencing your grace and your righteousness so deeply? Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.